Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and this is Arab Shabbat service with B'nai Shalom, our internet congregation. If you're joining us uh, this evening or this Sabbath, uh, you're one of more than 14,000 computers that log in each week to enjoy this service, and we are glad to have every one of you join us and be a part of it. We pray and hope that our service will be a great blessing to you. Let me share a couple of quick announcements uh, with you. Uh, let me start with the closest one. Uh, February, mark your calendars, Wednesday, February 21. Uh, we're going to have another Q&A broadcast, Q&A program. If you'd like to be a part of that, send some questions in. Send those email-wise to qa at lionlamb.net. And we'll be happy to slot those into the program and, and uh, get those questions answered for you. Again, questions of a biblical nature or of a spiritual nature about our messianic faith. And uh, be a part of that program. Join us February 21 for that. Uh, coming up, uh, is the Memorial Day weekend is Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. And I know that's after Passover that's coming up even quicker. But we have a conference that we hold here in Norman. Uh, it's called uh, ShavuotEvent.com. And if you'd like to come and be a part of many brethren coming to observe the Feast of Weeks with this, you can be a part of that. Sign up and register and come, and we'll plan to have you be a part of that wonderful weekend, Memorial Day weekend, Shavuot, and uh, come and be a feast with us. Uh, this summer, Camp Yeshua, uh, for the youth, uh, the registration is already filled, you know, for the youth. Praise the Lord. However, for those kids that still want to come, uh, we do have a special sign-up waiting list because a lot of times several youth will sign up for it, and then they're because of change of plans or something happens, they're not able to come. And so those that are on the waiting list, can go into the event and be a part of that. And so if you'd like to be a part of Camp Yeshua, then go to events at lionlamb.net, and uh, you can see the Camp Yeshua. Now, we're also needing some additional adult staff. And so if you would like to be a part of Camp Yeshua and assist us in putting Camp Yeshua on for the youth, please contact us at the same email address. Again, events at lionlamb.net. Let us know what your interest is, and we'll get back to you uh, for that. I appreciate uh, your help and, and uh, for that. Uh, you know, we started um, a special fund uh, since my wife, Lynn, passed away uh, a little less than two months ago. Part of her legacy and testimony was always trying to assist youth to go to camp and others to go to the Feast of Tabernacles and participate in the feast. And so we have designated a special fund in her name, and it's to assist youth to be able to come to camp and for other families to be able to come and participate in the appointed times of the Lord. And I'm happy to report to you that we have collected up more than $7,000 since the fund just got started. We're going to be able to help a lot of folks, you know, with that. And if you'd like to contribute to that, uh, I would most appreciate it uh, because I'm looking for we ways for Lynn to still be a part of the ministry. And this is a wonderful 
way for her to carry on her ministry and her legacy to help others. So if you'd like to be a part of that, appreciate it. You can just designate your offering to Lion and Lamb Ministries and, and designate it to uh, the Lynn Judah Memorial Fund. And we'll use it for those purposes to help others. So those are our announcements for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. And without any further ado, let's go to Kiddish and into our service. Welcome. Please join our family as we usher in the Sabbath. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments, and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Let's see the blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. See the blessing over the bread. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Our wives together. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you so much for my wife, Father, and the blessing that she is to me. Um, I thank you that the strength that I receive through her, Father, uh, from you. I just praise you for her, for her beauty, Father, just for um, the goodness that she is, Father. The way that she reads your word, Father, and spends time in your word, Father, I get to learn about you, Father, and motivates me to do the same. Thank you, Father. We can be an encouragement to one another, that we can be a, a team. That functions and works through life together. I think that she's um, a pillar of strength for me when I'm weak, and I need to be the same thing for her, Father. I praise you, Father. You, you reveal you so much of yourself um, through my wife, and I just I rejoice to know this, Father. Thank you for your continual goodness, Father. I think she, she sustains our home and takes care of our child, and for many more to come. Thank you, Father, again, for your faithfulness to me, Father, through my wife. Um, thank you, Father, you give me the ability to care for her as well. 
We praise you, Father, and I thank you for all your continual goodness to us. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Let's bless our sons. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai 
chamocha, neda harbachodesh, no ratechilot, o sefele, o sefele. Like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamruvene Israel at Hashabat, Lasot at Hashabat, Ladortam, Burit Olam, Bene Avayom, Bene Israel, Othit Leolam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadonai, et Hashmaim, Vayet Haret, Ovayom, Hashabi, Shavat, Vayinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. If we all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale a'asher n'chim e'zavcha, ha'yom alevavcha. V'shinantam lavanecha, v'teparabam p'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, uv'kumika. Ukeshatam la oto yadecha, v'heyu latotvot b'inenecha, uchetavtam amazuzo p'techa, uv'isharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom.
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us this Shabbat and who has called us to this place to praise his name. O Holy One of Israel, blessed are you, whose kingdom is forever and ever. We honor you in this place. We lift your name high. We dance before you. For you are holy. You are Kadosh. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, to chapter 21, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. As always, as you are opening the scripture, I like to do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato, baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Mishpatim, which comes from Exodus chapter 21, where it says, Now these are the judgments that you shall set before them. To recap where we are in our story, the children of Israel have come to Mount Sinai. They have been brought by Moses to return to the mountain where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and wanted them to come to the mountain and to worship him and to form a covenant with them, to bring them near to himself and form a true covenant between God and man. And these are the people that God has chosen. So last portion, we had the reading of the Ten Commandments where God, his voice boomed from the mountain. He had the people had prepared themselves for three days, appeared before the mountain, to enter into a covenant between God and man such as never been seen before. And they had prepared themselves. But then when the voice boomed and thundered from the mountain, they grew afraid. They didn't want to hear any more. They couldn't hear any more of the judgments. They heard the ten words, the ten commandments. But then they were afraid and they couldn't, they, they told Moses, we could not hear any more. And so they said, Moses, you go up, you go and speak to God, whatever he tells you, Then bring back, you say to us, and that's what we will do. This was not the original plan. This is not what God was intending to do. He wanted to make covenant with them. He was going to speak with so much power. The same voice that created the world was going to, like, was going to enter into them, into their hearts, into their lives, that these words and these commands would be upon their heart, that they would just live by them. 
And that's what I believe that God originally intended to do, but the children of Israel were not ready for that. So then back in chapter 20, uh, there around verse, uh, 20, uh, verse 20, you know, God, or Moses, goes back, says to the people, God will test you, and you do not fear them, but the people, they stood far off, and Moses then draws back into the cloud. And now what we have in our passages, in our Bible, is these words that God spoke to Moses, Moses wrote them down in a book, and then that book of the covenant was read to the people. And that's at the end of our Torah portion here, where Moses reads the book to the people. The people affirm the covenant again and say, whatever the Lord has said, we will do the words of this covenant, we will do them. But like I said before, I believe God originally intended to just speak it into their lives, that these things would just come naturally to the people, that they would follow the word of the Lord because he spoke it to them. So we have this book, we have all of these laws and all of these ordinances here in our passage. And some of them are very detailed. They go into what it is, what constitutes what murder really is. Whether it's something is manslaughter, well somebody killed somebody but accidentally killed them. But if he lied in wait, then that's first degree murder. Or if somebody loans an ox and the ox had a tendency to be violent and that if he didn't tell his neighbor that the ox was violent and be careful and that kind of thing, then that's what's called negligent homicide in our modern court cases. And so some of these details that come down through these ordinances are things that sort of outline and describe maybe what exactly murder is, what exactly bearing false te- testimony is. Sort of, It's almost an elaboration of the Ten Commandments. These are things that I believe if God was allowed to continue to speak into the children of Israel, then the children of Israel would know truly what murder is and what is not murder. And we wouldn't have these details. These words that Moses speaks here in our Torah portion here is sometimes almost spoken in a parable, if you will. So it can be understand, understood by whoever might be hearing it, that it tells a story or gives an example, such as like a man loaning an ox or something that is, some, you, you find a, you know, your enemy's ox on the, on the side of the road, what are you to do to show kindness? For those that are people that are moral, that are understanding of just truly what's right and wrong, and they let the Spirit lead them, you kind of know what's the right answer in that situation. Many of these words and these stories simply confirm what the Spirit of God would lead you to do between right and wrong. So here we have all of these commandments, all of these instructions. So they're written in a way so that they can be understood. So that we can read words on a page, rather than hearing God speak truly into our lives, we can read these words on a page and sort of get a better understanding of what it means to follow His Word and to keep the covenant that God has given to the children of Israel. Because that's what we're all desiring to do. We're all desiring to be in that covenant. We're all desiring to be with God, to dwell with Him in His presence. And these words that God has given us, these uh, marriage vows, if you will, that we will do this and we won't do that, is what it takes to remain in covenant with God. And so that's what we have in our Torah portion here. There's many other further details in some of these words and these instructions that are fascinating. I love this Torah portion because there's so many more little nuances and details to what it is that you might just read the words on the page and say, oh yeah, I'm good, I don't do that, and, and, and so I followed that commandment. But no, there's more details, there's more interpretation of what it might mean for you today. 
We have instructions, like I said, about loaning an ox to somebody. Many of us don't own oxen and we don't, we're not farmers. However, there are times that we might have something else in our possession that we might loan to a neighbor. Maybe a car, maybe a barbecue grill. And those same principles apply to, if you are to loan something to somebody that you are knowing that it is in good working order, that it isn't going to cause harm to anybody, and that restitution can be made if maybe it's broken in the possession of your neighbor, or it's stolen while it was at your neighbor's house, and all of these different things, that these commandments actually describe how to make restitution for all of those things. So there's a lot more detail to it, and it is very applicable to us today. And I don't have the time in this message to go into all of those details, and so this is a great passage for discussion, to talk amongst one another, and what does it mean to us in our modern day when these commandments are given. There's also an amazing parallel. I'll go ahead and just uh, share this right away. There's an amazing parallel in the New Testament of when Yeshua spoke... The Sermon on the Mount, that you have the chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that where uh, Yeshua is speaking to the people, and he's almost teaching the Torah in the process of that message. And in that message, he talked about, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you this. And those commandments are described in this Torah portion. He's also said, you've heard it said, eye for eye. That phrase is also in this portion as well. And so, you can parallel the those three chapters of Matthew with these three chapters, 21, 22, and 23 of Exodus, and you can kind of lay them over the top and you can see Yeshua's teaching and interpretation of Torah and the words of the covenant that are given to us through Moses. So this is an amazing passage of scripture. Let me start by saying this. Moses goes back into the presence of God. He goes into a cloud, he draws near to God, and then God starts to give him teachings and and lessons to learn. Right there before our Torah portion for this week, at the end of chapter 20, starting at verse 22, it talks about the establishment of an altar. And God reaffirms to Moses, you shall make nothing to be me. No gods of silver, no gods of gold, which is a very good starting point to where if we're going to start elaborating on how we truly are going to follow God and keep his words and his commandments, there is a order and a process to how we keep these commandments. That there's a special way that you are to worship Him. If you are to worship Him with an altar, or to you're supposed to bow down to God, but you're not to make anything else to be like God. Now, that's you. it's almost an elaboration of the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments, where it says, I'm the Lord your God, believe in me, and that you shall have no other gods before me. And so we have this elaboration and these details given to Moses so that he could write them down in a book for us to actually follow. When our tor- where our Torah portion begins in chapter 21, let me first talk about this. It's very interesting about this word mishpatim, these judgments or these ordinances that are given by God through Moses. Um, mishpatim is really, it has lots of different details to exactly what it is. It's a judgment, it's a decree, it's a law, it's, the, it's something to live by. That it's a, If a king makes an, a decree, that you must follow that decree because the king has given it. And mishpatim is the, the root of it, or the singular of that is a mishpat, which is a singular ordinance. And mishpatim is the plural of that. If you add the yod and the mem at the end of a, a word, oftentimes, makes it plural. There's a root word of mishpat, which is shafat, 
which in the Hebrew, that is a judge. It's very fascinating that the, the shafat, or judge, you add a mem in front of that word to make mishpat, and it's a, you make a judgment. So a judge is the root of a judgment or an ordinance. Um, I love the Hebrew language. I love all the different nuances of what the different letters mean. And that mem means water, or it sometimes means the spirit. And water is what's used to um, water plants. For something to grow, to make life, you need to have water. And so you take a judge, and it's almost as if you have a judge, a shafat, and you add water to it, or you ha- or add a mem to it, and it's if a judge is watering a garden, and suddenly what he- the act of what he does creates ordinances, judgments, decrees for one to actually follow. So it's fascinating here when you look at the Hebrew language and what all of the different nuances of what that means. So we go into chapter 21, and we start looking at, all right, these are the important judgments, these are the stipulations of what it is to be in covenant with God. So you would think the subject matter of what we're going to be commanded here is extremely important. It'd be very important, we're talking about not having any gods before me, we've just heard the Ten Commandments, so what is it that God has for our instruction? This is where we have the law of the bondservant. Let me go ahead and read here and let's follow along and see what is the importance of this law of the bondservant that it's so important it would be one of the first judgments and decrees from God, the ultimate judge, for us to learn. Verse 2 of chapter 21. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Very fascinating passage of scripture. Once again, like I said, if we're trying to lay these commandments and these instructions over our modern day lives, then what is this business about servants? And we abolished slavery a long time ago in this country. And what is this deal about servants and servitude and masters and somebody coming in and serving someone? What many people might look at this passage and just gloss over it that it's no longer has the importance that it might have had in ancient times. It, it doesn't apply to us today. However, this may I submit to you, is one of the most important understandings we must have when it comes to serving God, who is the ultimate master, who that we are guests in his house. He created this world. This earth is the house that God has built. We are nothing but servants in the master's house. If we need to, we need to understand our relationship between us and God, and so we might actually pay closer attention to where any instruction that has to do with a master and a servant, let me just go ahead and break the code for you. That is the relationship between you and God. That if you work for Him, if you serve God, then these are instructions that you should probably think about and kind of apply to your life. Because what happened in ancient times is this, is that a man would go down on his luck, he, could no, he couldn't be a free man, he didn't have enough money, he would have to submit himself into the house of somebody who did have money, bring him in, he was able, now in ancient times actually the true uh, 
example of a servant is that he would eat at the same table with the master. That somebody would come into the family and they would have equal rights and privileges as the children of that master. And that they became a part of the family. So a man would come into a house and then maybe through the course of seven years of working for him, maybe he would... Uh, a, Woman would come along the way because of the master in his house. She would marry to him. They'd bear children over the course of several years. When it came time for him to go free, he could leave. But the wife and the kids would have to stay because it was through the means of the master that it was provided to him. So what he had to do, he had to confess his allegiance, permanent allegiance to his master. And that because he loves his wife, he loves his kids. And then he would permanently serve in the house of the master. This is the same way that we should look at our relationship with God, that when God has blessed you, for every man listening to me, you look at your wife, or you might have kids, and you look and you say, this is nothing but favor that God has given to me. As I have dwelt on this earth, as God has given me life to live, it was by the grace of God that I even met this woman, that she fell in love with me, usually not by anything that I did, but something the Lord laid on her heart. To love me and to be with me and part of my family. And so at that point, if you look and you're like, all right, Lord, well, I want to do this with my life. Mm, Sorry, the Lord has given you this new life, this new responsibility that you have to decide. Every man has to decide. Are you going to submit to the God who provided you all the blessings that come to you and in your life? That is exactly what every man has to confess and has to admit and has to believe at some point in their life. That they are submitting to the work of the Lord and what the Lord has provided for them. And that's what it is. And God takes that person and he claims them as his own. In the ceremony we had here before, the awl was pierced on the ear. And any time that there was a piercing or a mark or a cut, sometimes that was always an indication of ownership. That the master was declaring ownership over that man and over that servant. And there's also an amazing thing, and I heard this parallel. If ever you hear in the scripture about someone's ears being opened to the word of the Lord, or the spirit of the Lord. There's a funny little word picture there that an ear being pierced with an awl, that it's almost like, just sort of put a little parentheses, a phrase that says, if your ears were opened, because that's exactly what happens physically when a man, when somebody, your ear is pierced and they're claimed ownership in the master's house. But then when that happens, then that servant suddenly the, the whole relationship between them and their master comes alive and becomes anew. And it's almost as if when your relationship with God, after you tell God, Lord, I love you, I'm going to serve you, I'm not going to go out on my own, I will be a servant in your house. God will then suddenly have your ears be opened to his word and his teaching and his instruction and all of those things. And so there's amazing word pictures that are going on here. Some other thing that's extremely fascinating in these words, and this is, this is really, really cool when I've uh, learned of this. There in our passage where it says, bring him, the servant, to the judges. And it says, bring him to the door or the doorpost. First of all, in ancient times, the judges always sat at the gates of the city. That's where we would go. You'd go to the door or the entrance of the city. That's where the judges would enact judgment over the city. So logically, it makes sense. Oh yeah, you'd go to the gate of the city, you'd meet with the judges. In our passage, in the Hebrew text here of our passage, where it says judges, this is one of only four times in all of our English translations that the word, Hebrew word, Elohim, is translated as judges. only happens four times in all of Scripture. All four times are in this Torah portion. The Elohim is always translated as God. 
or specifically Elohim is the plural of God and it's actually gods and so that's why it's translated in here as judges. Now there are some translations where there's another uh, verse in First uh, Samuel that I believe that Elohim is translated as judge but in almost every English translation this is the only place where Elohim is translated as judges. So let's go back to our, our story here. So the master is supposed to take uh, their servant and not just go before the judges, but go before Elohim. Go before God. There's something more than just physical going on here. There's something spiritual going on here. That the, that the servant will appear before Elohim. It's also that he's supposed to take him to the door or the doorpost. Kind of interesting. How many commandments tell you that you can do this or that? Not many. It's kind of fascinating whenever you see that in scripture. That's like, okay, so you could go to the door or the doorpost. Well, which one am I supposed to go to? This is what's interesting. And you have these, these different parts of God being present, different witnesses of this servant submitting himself to the master. Because who was it that called himself the door? It was Yeshua that said, I am the door. And so here in the, in the uh, nuance of our uh, verse here, you bring him before Elohim, you bring him before the door, and then you bring him to the mezuzah, or the door post, which is in our um, traditions, the, door, the mezuzah has the written words of the, command, of the law, of the commandments, of the covenant with God. And so you have all of these things present while this ceremony takes place. You have God present. You have Yeshua present. We've got more than one witness to establish truth of what is truly happening here. And it's all done in accordance with the word and the law that is given. Very fascinating of how all of this all works together. In that how the, this law, the bonds, there's more going on than just we're talking about Hebrew slaves and masters and, and all of these different things. It all has to do with your relationship and your covenant with God. As our Torah portion continues on, like I said before, it, it goes into details having to do with uh, manslaughter, murder. It likens kidnapping to murder as well. That's a punishable death, or pun- punishable by death if it's done. Um, and so there's other details here, like I said, that you should go in and you should read some of these instructions because these are the, the vows of the covenant to follow if we are to remain in the presence of God. It talks about the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which I've said many times before that it doesn't necessarily mean that you, if somebody loses an eye due to somebody's negligence that you have to take somebody else's eye out. It all has to do with assigning a value based on a judge's interpretation of what is the proper payment to make restitution for any damages done. That has to do also with if you, something is loaned to somebody, um, also if something is stolen, or if somebody, if something's stolen or somebody claims that it's all like, I didn't, I wasn't the one who stole it, there's ways to go before the judges and, and for these things to be, uh, to, for restitution to be made for any of these things and wrongdoing. It also talks about specific, very moral practices that for within a community, things that are needed to keep the people, to keep the community holy, if you will. There's certain words, uh, certain uh, commandments that says you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Somebody who enacts magic and think things that are not of the Lord should not be in your presence. Um, that anyone who sacrifices to any other god in, amongst you should be destroyed. It talks about how there should be no mistreatment of the stranger or the, or the, the widow or the
the orphan because they will hear my cry and I will enact judgment. God will enact judgment. We, we've said many times before that it was this is the very judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, that it was injustice to the widow and to the orphan that caused these things. Also, another one that's fascinating, chapter 22, verse 28, where it says, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. This is something that we uh, comes across in our uh, United States of America constantly while you have, you know, critique of whoever happens to be the president of the United States. It comes from both sides. It's uh, from no matter which political party the president represents or the people are are fighting for. uh, This always takes place where people will curse the ruler of the country. That is a big no-no according to scripture because it has a couple of things. One... God is the one who raises up and establishes rulers of kingdoms, and he takes them down. And if you are uh, against who God has set up in, as the leader of your country, then you're basically going against the will of God and the establishment that he has created. It also has to do with this. If you cannot assess honor to an office that is a ruler and a leader of you, your country, your community, whatever it might be, if you can't show honor to something physical that you can see with your eyes, then how can you show honor to the God who is the ruler of the entire universe? It's the same thing about honoring your father and your mother. If you cannot honor the established authority that is over you in this physical world, then how can you show yourself approved to show Honor to the authority of heaven and earth. You cannot do it. Because it's not, how, if you can't do it with what is seen, then how can you do it with what is unseen? So several things about, so, about this subject. So, when you read this, it sh- everyone should take pause. Anyone who talks about the, the politics of the country and, and all of these things, be very mindful of your speech on what you are saying, because there is a commandment in here to not curse the ruler of your people. Because there is a a great amount of judgment that will come upon you and you are showing yourself to not understand the covenant between you and God and the relationship between you and your master if you think that you stand up and you're cursing somebody, another person who is actually a ruler or a leader within a community or even the ruler of a country. Many things to learn in this Torah portion about some of these details. Chapter 23 starts by talking about circulating a false report. That it's about truly what it is to not bear false witness. That it's like you, you shall not go with the crowd. You shall not go with the, the, with the majority of what people think or what they feel. You shall stand up for truth and shall testify truthfully about a matter. This is something that it's very logical. In fact, there's a logical fallacy of the bandwagon fallacy where you're not just supposed to join in with what the majority of people think and believe and that that somehow establishes truth. Not at all. Truth is is truth regardless of how many people think of something different. What it is, is you shall follow after what and pursue what is true. Even if you're the only one who testifies to the truth, you shall stand on that principle and not just join a crowd or join a riot in lawlessness and iniquity in believing something that is false. You shall stand up for what is true. And this is a part also where it talks about if you see the ox of your enemy, something that belongs to somebody who you don't like very much, that you're supposed to take that object, that possession, and you're supposed to take care of it, tend to it. 
feed it if it's a if it's a pet. Say you have a pet that annoys the heck out of you and your family all the time, but then your neighbor is nowhere to be found. The the animal is starving or in need of food. Torah says you're supposed to take care of that animal until it can be returned to your neighbor, even if you like them or not. And one of the things is about th- about that is this is that that would actually be the means to resolve conflicts in your life. If you have a dispute between you and another person, but then if you show yourself to be submissive to your master, his commandments, to uh, what is moral, what is right, to take care of something that belongs to them, when you go to return that possession back to them, that is your opportunity to resolve any issue or conflict you might have with that person. To where that person whom you might have called your enemy one day, you now will resolve it and now you will call him your brother if this is done properly. You can understand how these things could work that if everybody could follow these rules within a community, within all of our relationships, it would be better for us. It would be better for all of us that we would be able to resolve conflicts because we all submit to a higher power, higher authority that we're not trying to earn anything for ourselves because we are not a free man who is responsible for everything that you have to do. It, it, I liken it unto this. Home ownership. There's sometimes, in fact, this happened to my, in me in my life recently. My furnace went out. And my furnace went out and I had to buy a new furnace and a new HVAC system for my house. It was too old. It needed to be replaced. I'm the owner of the home. I'm responsible for it. I have to foot the entire bill to replace that because I'm the homeowner. If I was renting that house, if there was a landlord or a somebody who I submitted to their authority in matters of the dwelling in which I live, then it would be their responsibility. Now, I'm not trying here to, to say that it's much better to rent a house rather than own own a house, there's a lot more things going on, but I'm using that as an example in which that if something or someone comes against you, if you're oppressed in any way, if you submit yourself to another authority that will fight for you and they will make restitution, your landlord is their responsibility to replace the HVAC, not you. And so that's the principle of the matter that sometimes, sometimes, actually I would say most times, it is better to be a servant in the house of the master than to be your own free man that you are solely responsible for everything that happens to you and your life. Spiritually, what I'm talking about here is that you submit to the Lord. You submit to His will for your life. You submit to Him that you, you humble yourself to understand He's the creator of all things. He has, His Spirit moves uh, amongst us. I believe in His words of His covenant and that we follow him. He is my master and I serve him. Now we live in a physical world, yes. You're still, as a servant of God, you still are physically responsible for some things in your life. So there's a lot of different things going on. It's not just black and white in that manner. But if you submit yourself to God as your master, then I guarantee you it is better to serve in his house, better is one day in his courts than a thousand anywhere as a free man. So, that's again what these uh, commandments and these instructions are for. Our passage also talks about the laws of Sabbaths and the annual feasts. These are elaborations of the commandment of keeping the Sabbath. That it's like if we're, God rested on the seventh day, we are to rest on the seventh day. And so these are some written details of what it means to remember and keep the Sabbath holy. Another very fascinating passage of scripture. Once again, we always point, I love to point out where Yeshua 
the testimony of Yeshua or the prophecies having to do with Yeshua appear in our Torah. In the Old Testament that some modern Christians say is not applicable or it's just a bunch of history. No, if you're a believer in Jesus the Messiah and you ignore some of these passages of Scripture, then you are ignoring the very thing that proves that Jesus is the Son of God and is given by God to, to the world for you for His sacrifice. Here in our portion here, verse 20 of chapter 23 of Exodus, it says this, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. For if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. That if you believe that God is going to send an angel or a messenger, the Hebrew word there is memra, and that he is, that God's name is going to be in him, and don't provoke him or he won't pardon your transgressions. Ipso facto, if you believe in him, he has the ability to pardon your sins and your transgressions. Only God can do that. And that is exactly the testimony of what we say about Yeshua the Messiah and that He came and He's leading us in the way of all the words that God has said. There is a prophecy about the Messiah here in the book of the covenant that Moses wrote down that God said to Moses. That this is, the, this is almost a grand story of all the things God is going to do. If you follow my words, my mishpatim, my judgments, my ordinances, if you do all these things and live uprightly before the Lord, then even beyond that, I'm going to send my messenger to teach you in all of these ways. He's going to speak my words. My name is going to be in him. Do not provoke him. Obey his voice and the things that he says. And that's the commandment there, that this is still a prophecy. For anybody that believes that Yeshua of Nazareth is not the Messiah, then you have to question, when is this prophecy going to be fulfilled? Fulfilled. Who is the messenger of God, whose God's name was upon him, and that he spoke the words, and that we, did we, did we provoke him? Did we obey the words that he said? Because if we do, then all of our enemies will be cut off. We'll have no fear of the enemy or the sword coming against us. And we will be protected by the power of God if we follow what the messenger has said. I believe that messenger was Yeshua. I believe this prophecy has been fulfilled. And if we do not provoke him, the problem is, is that we do provoke him. The problem is, is we don't obey the words that he said. So this f- prophecy is yet to be fulfilled that truly God is an adversary to all of our adversaries and has cut off all of our enemies. So this still is yet to be fulfilled because we still don't truly follow the words of that messenger. Amazing prophecy in our Torah portion here that specifically points to Yeshua the Messiah. Chapter 24, our last chapter of our Torah portion here, is when... Israel affirms the covenant. Moses writes down all of these words and reads this book. Let me go ahead and read here, and then we'll be concluding the subject of really what's going on here with the book of the covenant and all of the words in the covenant between Israel and God. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses stood alone, shall come near to the Lord, and shall come near 
near, nor shall the people go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and the people answered in one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he wrote arose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. Half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, it was paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, so they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Very fascinating thing going on here. A couple of things. The blood of the covenant. That is not just a New Testament concept when people have heard the word blood of the covenant. Because it was Yeshua at the Last Supper that took a cup of wine and said, this is the blood of the covenant. For you, it's not just a New Testament thing because that is, comes from here. The blood of the very covenant of the relationship between God and, me, and man. Keep that in mind. And that blood was then sprinkled onto the people. So then the elders come up with Moses. And it says this, they saw the God of Israel. How many times do, have, you, have you truly realized that there was 70 elders along with Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Nabihu, the sons of Aaron, that they went up to the mountain and they saw God. They all saw God. Not just Moses. Not just Moses going up to the mountain speaking to God. That there's this God that is completely unseen. And oh, it's like, well, people in, in hindsight might question. They'll be like, man, did Moses just make all of this up? Did he really just make all of this up and said he has a testimony of what he saw God in the cleft of the rock and he did this and he made covenant with us and it was just the words of Moses? No, in our scripture here we have the evidence of 70 elders went up and had a covenant meal. They ate and they drank with the God of Israel. Physically, they saw him. He was standing on what looked like paver stones of sapphire. That is the testimony of what they saw. That this was not just Moses making this up. That this is the testimony of the covenant that was made with the people. Now, very interesting. In our scripture, it also says, Exodus 33, it says that no one can see God and live. So how in the world can these 70 men have seen God and live? Wait a minute. Just a couple of verses earlier, they were covered by the blood of the covenant. That they were covered by the blood of the covenant that allowed them to enter into the presence of God, see Him, and have a covenant meal with the God of Israel. How much you want to bet, first of all, the, what they saw in God was probably Yeshua. Looked like Yeshua, that was Yeshua. They got to meet Yeshua, 70 elders, along with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu. We had a great covenant meal with the God of Israel. But they ate and they drank and they saw all of these things. But they were, they were able to do that and enter into the presence of God and stand with God and look upon God because they had the blood of the covenant. It brings more light to the phrase that when Yeshua said that no one comes to the Father except through me. That only through His blood can you go into the presence of God. 
And there's all those, all the uh, details of the temple service about that only once a year could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and, and render a, a service there at Yom Kippur and do all these things because lest he die if anyone goes in there. But then through the work of Yeshua, we then, through his blood, covered by his blood, can enter into the presence of God and not die and not perish. That's the amazing blessing that we have through Yeshua, through that ultimate sacrifice that he was. Not that he does away with anything previous, but that it, it establishes the covenant more so that we too, spiritually, can enter into that covenant and have a covenant meal with the God of Israel and that the relationship between God and man with Elohim and us is now different and changed beyond anything that we had ever known previous. And that's what it means to be in covenant with God. All of that coming after the fact that we have submitted to the words that he has said. We keep his commandments and the things that he has asked us to do to live uprightly before him. And we enter into the covenant with a true relationship between us and God as we serve in the house of our master. What an amazing blessing that is. And I pray that this would cause us to look at these words and these instructions and understand the parallels connecting to the sacrifice and the testimony of Yeshua and that all of these things would come together so that we can truly understand the covenant relationship that we have with the Creator of heaven and earth. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching and your instruction. We thank you, Lord, for the example that you have given to the children of Israel. Father, I pray that we would allow your words to penetrate us and speak into us. We would allow, and Lord, we submit to you and your words, and we pray that you would change us in our hearts, in our inwardmost being, Lord, that we would follow these commandments, that you would write them upon our hearts That the words on the page, Father, simply confirm what is already there and what you have spoken to us. May your spirit lead us and guide us in all things, Lord. But may we also continue to look back to these words so that we can be reminded, Lord, of the detailed instruction, Father, that we need to know, Lord, when it comes to dealing with our neighbors and our brothers and our family members, Father. And that we would continue to understand in love all the ways that we are to act, Lord, through your words and your instructions. So, Father, I pray that you would write them upon our hearts. May love always be what these commandments and these instructions hang on in our lives and in all of our relationships. Father, we give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise. And it's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray these things. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natalanu Torah temet V'chayalam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. And uh, thank you, Ephraim, for your teaching on Mishpatim. If you would, turn in your Bibles now with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 21. We'll be going through this chapter. Uh, And uh, last week, we were in the early part of this chapter. The first part that came up to think not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fill it up full of meaning. Now, what follows here is Yeshua's teaching 
of many of the commandments of the Lord. The same commandments that were given in Mount Sinai, the same ones that were given to Moses. And in our Torah portion, Mishpatim, here comes the commandments that the Lord specifically teaches to Moses and has him bring them down because the people said, we don't want to hear the voice of God anymore. Can't stand that. Too hard. Going to kill us. And so Moses was dispatched with the teaching and the commandments for the rest of the people. And so here's this, what follows in, in our portion today from the New Testament, is Yeshua is addressing some of those same commandments, and he's giving his teaching, his version on it. Now, let me remind everyone that the, one of the, what's considered to be one of the greatest prophecies of the Messiah it's given both by the prophet Isaiah as well as the prophet Micah. They virtually say the same things. And it's the prophecy that says, For the Torah shall go forth out of Zion, the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. That phrase is speaking into the future. And it is the understanding of all uh, Torah teachers, all biblical teachers, that's the prophecy about the Messiah. Specifically, that the Messiah, who will rule from Jerusalem, he will become the premier teacher of the Torah. He will become the premier teacher of the things that the Lord has said. He will be the top teacher that uh, there is. And so we're looking for a Messiah that is uh, a great Torah teacher. Now, interestingly enough, here is Yeshua, the Messiah. Guess what he's teaching? Torah. But we struggle with this a little bit, at least a, a lot of Christians struggle with it, because, well, one, uh, it, and this is my humble opinion, one, they really don't know what the Torah really said. They don't know when the Torah gave these commandments, what does it really mean? What's the weight of that? And then when they hear the Messiah come teaching about that, they get even further confused. They, they kind of missed the essence of what, what was really being taught. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. At verse 21, it says right off the, right off, as we begin, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, contrast there. Um, he's referring to a teaching that was in the past about the commandments of the Lord, and then he's going to give a contrasting teaching to that. Um, Moses came and gave us the instructions of the Lord. He gave us the Torah. But as you know, uh, my Jewish brethren, uh, as the years went on, they took that teaching and they uh, did some interesting things with that teaching. And they began to draw interpretation and began to draw application to the commandment in such a way that it kind of got askewed a little bit. And what we have is Yeshua coming here, and guess what he's really doing? He's pulling it back to what Moses was talking about. He's not come up with a new teaching. He's not replacing the commandments whatsoever. What he's doing is he's replacing the previous teaching you have heard on this and trying to get the people back to the actual teaching of really what it meant, what Moses really did give to us. 
And so let's take this first example. Uh, you have heard it from the ancients. You were told you shall not murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, the commandment says you shall not murder. I mean, it's on the Ten Commandments. That's exactly what God said. However, if you've been instructed in the Torah, one of the things that you learn, and, and this is from many examples that we have, whether you violate a commandment or whether you keep a commandment, it begins with some something to do with your heart. If you sin, you in your heart... Begin to deny what God has said, or you covet something from the heart, and that's the reason why you prefer, and that's the reason why you transgress the commandment. On the other case, if you obey the commandment, it's because you're motivated by your relationship with God. You love God, you want to love God, and that's the reason why you're going to obey, and that's the reason why you're going to do what the Lord says. So it always comes from the heart. Now, Moses didn't specifically says, he didn't specifically emphasize this, other than in this instance. And it's a very powerful instance. When the people said, when they heard the law, when the people said, whatsoever the Lord has said, we will do. And if you recall what the Lord said to Moses, oh, if the people only had a heart to go with that. You see, I heard what they said, but their heart's really not in it. So they're, they're giving lip service, if you will, to the commandment and to what God has asked, but they're not really doing it. It's a little bit like an erring kid who says, sure, Dad, I'll do it, and then he doesn't do it. Well, why didn't he really do it? His heart wasn't in it. He didn't really believe in his father, didn't want to honor him or respect him enough to do it. You know, and because of that vacancy and because it's hearts in different places, that's the reason why we got the results we got. Something less than. And so he immediately in these instances starts talking about what's in your heart. By the way, did you know that it is impossible to go out and intentionally murder somebody unless inside of you first you really intensely don't like this person? And you hate this person, and that's the reason why you are going to harm them to the point of murdering them. So how does the sin or the transgression of murder really begin? It begins from the heart. And this is what Yeshua is saying. I'm trying to tell you, he says, you've heard the other, and you see, here's what the rabbis used to actually teach. In fact, Judaism does teach this still to this day. Well... You can go ahead and hate the guy all you want. It's just don't go forward into the action of killing him. I'm, let me repeat that for you. You can go ahead and hate the fella, you know, where you want to kill him, but as long as you don't kill him, you haven't transgressed the commandment of the Lord. You sure stands up and says that's not true. Because sin originates from the heart. And so he says if you hate him in your heart, and these expressions here, raka and so forth, 
that's the kind of thing you would say to somebody you hate. And if you if that's where you're at, let me tell you, you're already guilty. You're already on the path of murder. Um, it's a little bit like um, a fellow goes to uh, kill a fellow. And he hits him once, he hits him twice, hits him three times, and says, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay, so he stops. The guy barely survives. What's he going to be convicted of? Attempted murder. Attempted murder. Guess what the penalty for attempted murder is right along with murder? Same thing. He's just as guilty as if he had actually killed him. Thank goodness he didn't kill him. But he still, his heart was in that sin and he's doing the murder. And in fact, the commandment, if you get into the detail, the commandment, you shall not murder. If you go and you strike the fella one time, whether he dies or not, you have violated that commandment. And that's what Yeshua is trying to explain. He's trying to say, look, every one of these commandments has to do with um, stuff that originates from your heart. He's going to go through a couple of more instances here uh, where he talks about committing adultery. You know, verse uh, 27. And he says, hey, here's another one of these commandments. It originates from the heart. What No guy ever goes out and commits adultery that he didn't first lust. He got caught up in his own temptations of lust. That, that's what led him to the path of actually committing adultery. Well, that's the same thing true of fornication. It's the same thing true of homosexuality or lesbians or bestiality or pedophiles. Or whatever. It all starts with lust. And by the way, when it says you should not commit adultery, it's not just that one type of sexual sin. He's talking about all of the lustful sins. The commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, covers all of those things. And that's what Yeshua proceeds to then explain. You're already guilty of it if you lust in your heart, because the heart is the one that leads you into sin. He goes on to uh, say, verse 33, Again, you have heard the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, or it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, your no, no, anything else is that of evil. Well, there is such a thing as vows. There is such a thing as taking oaths. And, but that's not the only thing about that. There's a whole Torah portion on about making vows. There's a lot of instructions for it. Vows are what make a marriage. When they come and they have marriage vows, that's what constitute a marriage. When you speak at a vow, you swear to do something, you actually, spiritually, this is what the law teaches, you actually go up and grab God's creation 
and you pull it down to where you're at and you alter the creation based on what you said. You use the power of the spoken word to create a new state of the creation, even to the extent God honors it and has to follow it. For example, let me give you a case. A fellow goes in and he gets married. And the audience hears him vow to be this woman's husband. They hear it. They step down from the altar. They come walking through the assembly. Is anybody question at that moment that the state of marriage doesn't exist? Does anybody question, well, you know, I don't know if he's really married or not. No. Everybody accepts that the the whole world that was before that ceremony, it has changed. The world before was two people coming in for a wedding. The world now is, these aren't two people anymore. This is a family. This is a couple. This is a marriage. That, and the whole, from that point on, your family will regard you in a completely different way. The rest of the world will regard you because you've used the power of a vow, a declaration, that's so powerful that God even holds to that. And that's the reason why God requires you to keep your vows, keep your oath, you know, for it. Here in the world, if you go into a court and you, you take an oath that you're going to tell the truth, if you don't tell the truth, guess what they do to you? They charge you with perjury and they put you in jail. You know, they take it very seriously. Well, God takes it very seriously when you make a vow uh, because it changes the creation that we all live in. And uh, if every time you turn around, you're swearing to do something or making an oath to do something just for regular Monday, you don't realize it, but you have you have constricted yourself to where that you have no more choices. That's what you have to do. Well, Yeshua's trying to teach, really, about vows. He's trying to explain how powerful those are. You be real careful about doing those. In fact, the Torah goes on to say that a husband, in being careful about vows, if a husband hears that his wife has made a vow, in the day he hears it, and he doesn't think it's right, he thinks that will not to be to her benefit, it might harm her, and so he has the authority from God to annul it. But if it goes past that day, even God requires it. And why would they have such an interesting, stringent thing uh, with regard to the penalties of failing to keep vows and oaths and so forth? And it's, the reason is, is because God gives us the ability with our mouth and our spoken word to literally change the creation that we live in by any oath or vow that we take. It's, when it's a spiritual law. And the Messiah is trying to teach us, you be real careful when you do that. You be real careful. And in fact, if at all possible, do not speak about Do not make an oath. If you want to make an agreement, to something, just say yes. If you want to disagree, just say no. In other words, use that methodology. Promise and and uh, and so forth but don't make a, a vow out of the thing 
let me give you an example. It's a little bit like this. Let's say you enter into a contract with another fellow, and you say, okay, uh, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that, and I promise to do it, and so forth. That's a yes, yes. That's I promise to do it. He promised to do it. Great. Now, if you break the contract, then the damages that may be associated are strictly limited to what was the deal that you were doing. The damages are strictly associated with the agreement that you made. However, if you make an oath, instead of just saying yes, you go beyond a promise. When you make an oath, you put the weight of your life on it. Now, you want to go down and buy a car and swear an oath that you will make the payments, and if you miss a payment, you die? Don't make an oath when you're making a contract to buy a car. You just let that be a yes. So Yeshua is trying to teach them what the commandment really is about, what Moses really instructed, as opposed to what the other teachers have told them. And what the teachers have told them is distorted. We who are messianics and have come, a lot of us, out of the church, we know for a fact that there are many things that the Lord taught uh, that came from the Torah and the prophets, and we know that the teaching on them have been distorted. In fact, we suffered the consequences of it, and a lot of us coming in the messianic movement are suddenly now learning what Moses and God really did teach and the truth has set us free, and, and, and we suddenly realize how subtle it was. The slight twist on the teaching would be uh, for that. Let me give you a, a stunning example of this, and it's uh, found here. Uh, let me go back to where we talk about the uh, ad adultery and we talk about divorce. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Verse 31, and he said, whoever divorces his wife... Let her uh, give her a certificate of dismissal. Now, in the Torah that's referred to, you give her a get. Um, that's a very specific uh, statement. Uh, that's a very specific written thing. And it's what breaks the vow. Now, you still suffer the consequences of breaking the vow, but that's the way a vow publicly is rendered as it is now broke. The vow is no more. And he goes on to say about divorce, this particular statement, which is very confusing to a lot of folks. Verse 32, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I've seen a lot of conservative uh, Christian folks. By the way, I used to be a good Baptist boy you know, before I came into the uh, Messianic movement. And I, I, had, I, I was told there was a very specific teaching about that. In fact, in the church where I was at for a long time, if you were a divorced couple, well, you weren't the same as other people. And if you were divorced, you couldn't be in the ministry. You couldn't be a deacon. And the church. And if a woman came in and she was a divorced woman, it was kind of like she kind of had leprosy, you know, kind of thing. And it was based on the scripture. Now, 
mind you, there has to be some understanding that goes behind this. There has to be a lot more understanding that goes behind this. So let me just for example, let's just take this topic and I'll show you how much this has been distorted. First of all, if you get back to the basics, did you know that the word get, this divorce of written, can never be found, that word can never be found in the Torah? In fact, there's no instance in the writing of the Torah that the scribes have ever permitted the letter Gimel to sit next to the letter Tav, even in running text. So that there's no instant that you could go through and you could just pick the letters out and go, Gimel, Tav, Get. And the reason is, is because the understanding is, it's so hateful. It's the last resort. It's something that we don't want to see and we don't want to have happen. And what is the real reason for divorce? It's hardness of the heart. And the story of Pharaoh and his heart being hardened. What it's talking about is that Pharaoh was in this big relationship with all of Israel, and Pharaoh had a hardness of his heart. This is the reason why God said, that's it, I'm getting them out of there. Now, he left them in there for several generations. He says, no, we got to get out of this relationship. And what the testimony that comes in is Pharaoh had hardness of the heart. Hardness of the heart is the basis for divorce. When your heart is hard, you're treacherous. Pharaoh was treacherous toward the children of Israel. And divorce, the bad divorce, results from treachery. Now, part of that treachery could be infidelity. You go out and you mess around and have an affair. What are you doing to your spouse? You're being treacherous. You're being deceptive. You're doing harm to it. And you're doing harm to your family. You're doing harm to your extended family. You are treacherous. You're, you need to stop that because you're just doing massive amounts of harm to other people. Um, and that's what Yeshua ends up talking about here. He's really talking about people who are using divorce to be a cover for other things. And by the way, in the days that Yeshua was speaking this, let me tell you what was the most common activity. And by the way, this will sound faintly familiar with what we have going on today. So a man, he meets his, uh, his bride. He gets married to her. Uh, they mature. They grow. They have children. And then he gets up to a certain age where he gets a little frisky. And maybe his wife is not so responsive to him anymore because she's a mother taking care of the house, taking care of children and all that. And he wants that young honey that he first found. And so he gets a little frisky and he says, well, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm going to go out and mess around. But, but he's a guy that says, no, no, I can't do that because I have to divorce her first before I can go do this. So he lines up the young new honey. And then he goes to his wife and he gives her a writ of divorce. Says, adios, sorry, can't get along with you anymore, uh, goodbye. And then he goes over and hooks up with the honey. You know what Yeshua is saying, that is? Saying that's adultery. You cannot use a writ of divorce to be a cover for adultery. And vice versa, you cannot use marriage as a cover 
for any other misbehavior. Marriage is not used to make it, quote, right. Marriage is its own thing. And marriage is based on vows. Marriage is based on commitment and dedication. It's not used as a thing to leverage so you can get away with what you want to get away with. And that's really what Yeshua is talking about. He used an instance that was very uh, visible in his day. By the way, we have the same issues going on today. We have men who get up to a certain point called midlife crisis, and all of a sudden they get a little frisky. It's kind of a common thing that happens. And um, as the counsel that I heard one time on um, you know, counseling people that are kind of going through that temptation, you have a choice when you go through a midlife crisis. You can either have an affair or you can go out and buy a black sports car. <laughs> And if you buy the sports car, it's far cheaper than what it would cost you for the other way. And uh, there's, there's a, you know, it's to recognize the stations of life we go through, but let's follow, let's maintain our vows, let's maintain the marriage, let's not use that and leverage that for something else. And that's what Yeshua is really teaching. That's what he's really talking about. He's talking about you made this oath, you made this vow, keep it. Don't play with it like it was a, like it was a uh, a promise or something. You know the the old business about marriage is fifty fifty. The heck it is. Marriage is you make a vow and you say in the vow, I don't care what the conditions are. I don't care if you get sick or I get sick or you get rich or I get poor. I don't care. I don't care if you decide you don't like me anymore. I don't care. I've made a vow. I'm going to be your husband and I'm going to love you no matter what happens. There's no conditions. That's a vow. But when you start going around, well, I didn't, uh, you didn't do a certain thing I liked, and I'm disappointed in you, and you don't please me anymore. Those are not conditions that can be used to break a vow of marriage. It turns out there's only one condition, and that is treachery. And if you get a spouse who is at the point of getting ready to kill you, then that's a reason for divorce. If you think that person is going to do real harm and you're convinced of it, now that's a reason to say, hold, hold, wait, okay, enough is enough. And we get that lesson from Pharaoh and his hard heart. God taught us, you know, when the heart gets that hard, now it's time to go. It's time to get out of that. So that's another example of how the teaching that Yeshua did is not something different from what Moses and the Torah did. It is definitely different than what religious men have taught before on the subject. And even to this day, I have heard lots of different Christian preachers counsel people, oh, you can't get divorced unless one of you has gone off and been uh, had infidelity. Well, I'll tell you what, if the woman's coming in and her husband is verbally and physically abusing and beating the hell out of her every night, that's a reason to get out of that marriage. That's treachery. And that's hardness of the heart. 
And those are the things that break vows. So, you know, quoting from this verse and making a whole theology off of it, the one thing I would remind you is that you better go find out what Yeshua is really talking about because what he's really teaching is what Moses taught, not what religious men teach. So let me go down a little bit further. Verse 38. You've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whatsoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your, and take your shirt. Uh, so give him your coat also. First of all, let's make sure we know, understand what is the law where it talks about an eye for an eye. He's not talking about your physical eye. That's not what he's talking about. There's a little Hebrew play on the words here. Eye for eye means value for value. And how do you determine the value? It's what you see. So you take your car and you back in to the fender of my car and you crunch the fender of my car. So what is the value that I should be remunerated because of the damage you've done to me? Well, my eye sees the fender when it's fixed. That's what it costs. Whatever it takes to get that fender to look like it was before that, that's what you, that's eye for eye. And if, um, and, and that's the way damages are determined. Now, a lot of times, you know, you'll have a kind of a damage where you can't restore like a fender on a vehicle. Well, what you do do is then you assign a value as a substitute for uh, whatever it is that was damaged. And that's a negotiation. And the negotiation goes something like this. Well, I see I did this. I'll pay you uh, this amount uh, to, to cover the damages there. Okay. By the way, I drove through your yard and I tore up your wife's roses. Okay? Drove through and just tore up her flower garden. Now, it's going to take some effort getting some new flowers, going out there and planting. And so how much do we determine as the value? The cost of labor, buying new flowers, all the hate, you know, the hate and discontent and frustration of what's taking place, uh, putting my yard back into shape because of the damage you've done. How much is it going to take? So the guy says, okay, I'll give you a hundred dollars, uh, for, you know, and the other guy, you got to go into a negotiation now. And the guy goes, no, no, this is the wife's flower bed. It's not mine. If it was mine, it'd be a hundred dollars. No, no, the wife says it's got to be two hundred dollars. Well, guess what Yeshua is saying? Give her the two hundred dollars. Satisfy the other party. You did harm to them. Do it good enough, pay for it good enough, that they're at peace with you, that, that the issue is over, that the issue has been resolved, eye for eye. And so that's what he's teaching. He said, don't just have some adjuster come in and say, well, you're entitled to $100 and that's it, that's all you're going to get. No, no, no. If you know that there's more damage done there and you know the, the person expects more from it, you're supposed to pay the additional amount. Eye for eye. That's what eye for eye, tooth for tooth means. Now, there's one other part to that I want to emphasize that the law really teaches, because 
This is an important part about our faith with God. Um, the law, if you actually go back and read this verse in the scripture, uh, there's two places where this phrase is used, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So let me give you what it actually says. We, I don't know if Ephraim went into the great detail on this, but let me, let me share just a little bit with you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, life for life. But if the man is a servant, he shall be set free. Oh, there's another condition here. There's another condition. It turns out that eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that's for free men. But if you harm a a servant, let's say he's your servant, and you harm him, which you have all of the control over, guess what the law says you have to do? You have to release him and he make him a free man. Do you know that that's what Yeshua does with us? You know that when we violate God's commandments and when it comes to freedom, that we end up in freedom from him and forgiveness and freedom? Wow. A lot of people have no idea there's that provision that it has to do with servants. Let me go a step further. Um, let's say that I'm the servant of the Lord. I don't know, the Lord's my master. And you come and you do harm to me. You know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Do I go and get eye for eye from you, value for value? Do I get that from you? No. You've committed yourself to the master. The master goes and gets that for you. The master goes and gets the eye for eye, not you. If we're the servants of God and people come up and they do harm to us, we don't have to go seek the justice of eye for eye with them. Our master goes and seeks justice of eye for eye with them. We submit to the master. The master will take care of us. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about justifying ourselves and so forth. The very first law that's given in the Torah portion after the Ten Commandments is the law of the bondservant. It's the law of the servant of the master. And in that, one of the things that we learn is the servant has the benefits of the master's house. He eats the same food, lives in the same dwelling. Um, and if he needs to have justice, if somebody's come and done something, his master will get him his justice. Now, do you understand the expression, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? I will come and carry out vengeance of those who've harmed my servants. God doesn't get hurt by anybody, but his servants get hurt. And so the vengeance come to protect his servants and on behalf of his servants. So Yeshua is going through and giving this much more detailed uh, explanation and teaching of the commandments of the Lord. So let's summarize here and let's draw a couple of conclusions of what we learned from this. First of all, if anybody stands up and tells you, well, Yeshua came teaching something different from the law, I'm here to argue with you until the sun sets and rises again, that that's not true. 
he's actually teaching what Moses gave. He's not teaching what religious men say. So, and when the Christians, of course, say, well, the law was done away with, no. Not only did he say, don't even think that I've come to do that, he actually taught it. He actually taught it. And other places where he's going to speak even further, chapter 6, chapter 7, you know what the end conclusion of all this will be? He'll be saying the following. Do all these things I have taught you to show yourself to be the servants of my Father. Do what I say, and you'll be the servants of my Father. And, of course, you know, later on he'll say, If you love me, keep my commandments. The commandments he's referring to is these right here. This is part of the teaching. I would love to have been there in the days when the disciples walking around, because I don't think this is all of the law he taught. I think there was a, a number of other instances where he was teaching the Torah. Because one of the prophecies of the Messiah is he'll be the greatest Torah teacher there is. And they saw him teach. And I'm looking forward to, when we get to be in the kingdom, Sabbath, when we'll all sit down and listen to Yeshua give us the Torah portion for the week. I think it's going to be great. I know this is hard for you to believe, but I believe it will be even greater than anything you've ever heard from Monty Judah on any Torah portion. I think it'll be wonderful, and it'll be profound, and it'll be wise, and it'll have substance to it, and it will change your soul and delight you uh, for his instruction. All right, so this is our portion for this week, and uh, let me just close in a word of prayer, please. Father, thank you for, first of all, your law, your commandments, your instructions. Thank you for the Messiah, and thank you, Lord, that Yeshua came teaching your commandments, and help us, Lord, to have the heart to obey. Help us, Lord, not only have the heart to obey, but to have the ears to hear your instruction. And that we would have a heart then that would lead us into the path of righteousness. Not a heart that would lead us into transgression, but rather, Lord, uh, that our relationship with you would grow more and more together by keeping your commandments and following your ways. We thank you for all of this instruction the instruction of Moses, and for the instruction from the Messiah himself. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. Shalom.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Way before the King of Kings. Whoa.